I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today on Battleground, we're talking to Travis View, a writer, conspiracy researcher, and podcaster who has been hosting QAnon Anonymous, a podcast covering the QAnon conspiracy for over two years. He's attended QAnon events across the country, and he's really one of the most knowledgeable and important QAnon researchers around. My erstwhile partner, Steve Schmidt, had some technical difficulties as we were preparing to record, so uh, it's just going to be me solo. Uh, You'll still get some thoughts from me informed by conversations I've had with Steve throughout the week, and then we're going to jump into our discussion with Travis View. So the first thing I'd like to start with is just imagine Thursday, January 21st. Joe Biden will wake up in the White House. He will maybe exercise, read his briefings, be on the phone a little bit, walk down much earlier than Donald Trump has ever done, take the elevator down from the residence, walk across the colonnade and enter the Oval Office and get to work. So these are dark times. Our conversation today with Travis View about QAnon will be a dark conversation. But imagine that, how differently we're all going to feel. The only tweets we get from Joe Biden will be compassion or a policy idea. <laughs> it won't be attacking people. It won't be about himself. And he's just simply going to get to work. And, you know, having worked in the White House in the West Wing, it's important to remind people there's no higher privilege, I think, for people who work in public service than to work in the West Wing. I know when I went in every morning, I pinched myself. And when I left, I'd look back at the building. Usually it was very late at night. So it would be dark. The White House would be lit up. And you're just filled with gratitude. But what happens between your arrival and your departure is really hard. Nothing easy finds itself to the second floor of the West Wing. If somebody else could have solved it, it would get solved somewhere else. So it's excruciatingly hard work. And that's one of the things that's worried me so much about Trump. Yes, his racism, his misogyny, his narcissism, his autocratic designs, all just historically damaging. But he just didn't take the job seriously. And the people around him, for the most part, didn't either. And Joe Biden's going to get some things right. He's going to get some things wrong. He'll hire mostly the right people. But everybody's going to just be serious about what they're doing. And the presidency, yes, you have to rally the American people. But it's less about the speeches you give, and it's more about the work you do, the decisions you make, who you listen to, who you don't, your negotiation skills, your prioritization. And I think Joe Biden and his team are going to bring that and more. You know, the darker side of what's been going on since we last talked with you is all we're learning about what happened leading up to the insurrection at the Capitol. We now know law enforcement authorities believe that assassination and kidnapping were part of these plans. So these Republicans who say, let's just move on, we need to heal the nation, like, fuck you. There needs to be accountability for those that organized this insurrection, who funded the insurrection, who encouraged it and who basically went along with a great lie that caused this, that somehow Trump won an election that he lost handily. There's polling out this week that shows over 50% of Republican voters believe Trump didn't go far enough to stay in power. Two-thirds of the people in the Republican Party believe that Trump won the election. There is a market for this, and it is a big, big market. And I think we all need to gird ourselves for that. All right. Well, that's enough thoughts from me. So let's get into it with our guest, Travis View. Those of you who listen to the podcast know Steve and I have talked quite a bit about QAnon 
in the weeks before the election and after the election, but the events at the Capitol last week, the insurrection, the attempted coup, really make this conversation with Travis as timely as possible. So I couldn't be more excited to have this conversation with Travis View today. Travis, thank you so much for joining us on Battleground. It's a pleasure to be here, David. QAnon is still a relatively recent phenomenon as a semi-organized movement. Could this have happened without the internet and social media? Could it have happened without Trump? There have been conspiracy theory movements before. If you want to go all the way back to, you know, the 19th century, the very first third party in the United States was the anti-Masonic party, which was dedicated to the proposition that the Freemasons were conspiring to take over the world. So the United States political culture has always had a conspiracy theory kind of undercurrent. But what makes QAnon unique is the fact that it's on social media. And this has had allowed a kind of like a gamification of the conspiracy theory believing process. It's not just that they're sort of reading these conspiracy theories and believing in them. It's that they're participating in the construction and the dissemination of the conspiracy theories. And all of a sudden now, not just a passive experience, it's a participatory experience. Even a fun experience, right? Yes. For them. It's yeah. enjoyable. It's addictive in the same way a really good video game is addictive. And this sucked a lot of people in. I think it was really instrumental to its growth. So listen, you're probably tired of explaining to people exactly what QAnon is, but could you give everybody the Cliff Notes version? Sure. So yeah, broadly, QAnon is a very elaborate conspiracy theory, but also a a sort of a domestic extremism movement that believes this conspiracy theory. So QAnon followers essentially believe that the world's controlled by a satanic ball of Satan worshiping pedophiles. They control everything, including media and politicians and the entertainment industry. They just hold all the levers of power. And QAnon followers further believe that this cabal would have just continued ruling the world indefinitely were it not for the election of Donald Trump. They think that Trump is the only uncorrupted elite, and therefore he is the only one that can save us from this cabal. QAnon followers further believe that Trump isn't fighting this cabal entirely in secret. They think that he's sending out secret codes about what he's doing in this fight on these anonymous message boards that started out on uh, 4chan and then the, the messages later moved to 8chan and now they're on 8kun. And these messages, they're very, very cryptic. They call them Q drops. And Q1 mm-hmm. followers believe that by decoding these Q drops, they can kind of like understand what's really going on in this battle of good versus evil. Now, in practice, this leads Q1 followers to detaching from reality. They wind up believing lots of absurd things like the deep state is firing missiles at Air Force One or possibly JFK Jr. is secretly alive. Now, listen, you're in this world. You clearly think that more people need to understand what's happening here and understand it better. I'm just curious, though, how important is it for people to go a little bit deeper than they have? Yeah, I think that you really can't even understand like the motivation for the siege or like the anger and fury people had at Mike Pence without understanding QAnon and QAnon-like conspiracy theories. Because essentially what was circulating in the QAnon community prior to that siege was the belief that Mike Pence somehow had the ability to unilaterally reject electoral votes. And there's some sort of constitutional process that would essentially allow him to hand Trump the win. Now, Trump himself encouraged this totally false belief. (laughs) But the only reason that there was a kind of environment in which the QAnon followers felt 
confident, supremely confident, certain in this absolutely nonsense sort of belief is because they've been marinating in these online conspiracy theories that made them feel as if they had access to some sort of secret knowledge. And so we may wind up seeing more of this, where we're going to see extremist incidents, terrorist attacks, where you can't understand the motivation unless you understand the QAnon thought process, the ways in which QAnon followers are totally detached from reality. Because these people, they are motivated by lies and their confused understanding of the world. And I think there's really no way to counter that without being able to peer inside their confused understanding mm -hmm. of the world. There are strains of these beliefs that predate 2016, correct? Talk a little bit about the origin of this. Some of these beliefs in QAnon predate the original emergence of the first Q drops in October of 2017 by thousands of years. For example, there's a belief in what they call adrenochrome. QAnon followers believe that the elites will torture and kill children in order to extract adrenalized blood, which they believe gives the elites sort of anti-aging abilities and gets them high. Now, this is obviously totally nonsense, but it's an echo of the old anti-Semitic canard uh -huh. of blood libel. That people People used to believe that nomadic Jews in Europe would sacrifice Christian children to take blood and use it to make their matzah. In the more immediate past, QAnon borrows a lot from the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, this belief that there was a sort of a DC-based human trafficking operation operated out of the pizza parlor Comet Ping Pong. That led to uh, an incident in which a man actually drove to Comet Ping Pong and fired a couple of shots in the pizzeria. Now, unfortunately, he wasn't didn't injure anyone, but he did serve a four-year sentence for that. So it's interesting, back in the uh, campaign, seems like it was 25 years ago, right? But just back in uh, the fall... Uh, you remember there was that period where Trump refused to denounce QAnon. During the pandemic, uh, the QAnon movement has been, appears to be gaining a lot of followers. Can you talk about what you think about that and what you have to say to people who are following this movement right now? Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate. These are people that don't like seeing what's going on in places like Portland and places like Chicago and New York and other cities and states. And uh, I've heard these are people that love our country and they just don't like seeing it. So I don't know really anything about it other than they do supposedly like me. At the crux of the theory is this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like something you are behind? Or well, I haven't, I haven't heard that, but uh, is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know, if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to put myself out there. And we are, actually. We're saving the world from a radical left philosophy that will destroy this country. And when this country is gone, the rest of the world would follow. I think there was a sense from political observers, oh, this is a big mistake for Trump. He's going to alienate people because of that. But my view is, to the extent there were swing voters who had a view on Q, it wasn't that many. I don't think people take it seriously. And I think he wanted the passion, the turnout from the Q community, which he got. You know, the election wasn't that close, but I think he did better than people thought, in part or mostly because he got great turnout. 
And, you know, some of that turnout came from Q adherence. I wonder when you saw that going down, kind of how you viewed the political implications of it. Because I think Trump, as crazy as he is, he doesn't do a lot of things not by design. And I think he decided, I'm going to hurt myself politically more if I distance. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with that. Trump has never been one to kind of like distance himself from his most passionate supporters. I mean, it really didn't surprise me when Trump de, you know, declined an opportunity to denounce QAnon and in fact praise QAnon followers. You know, Trump has quote tweeted or retweeted QAnon accounts over 200 times back when he still had his Twitter account. So he's always been at the very least willing to boost them on social media. And so when asked directly, both in a once in a press conference and then another time in a town hall about QAnon. Yeah, there's no way he would denounce people who thought that he was the savior of humanity. I think he was at very least somewhat cognizant that there's no benefit to him alienating any of his most passionate supporters. Right. I think in part because the number of people around the country who would vote against him because of that, I think, is small because I think there's a lot of people who still don't know what Q is. They think it's very fringe. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think he played that right politically, as odious as it was. So, Travis, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when you went through all the particulars of what Q adherents believe, uh, satanic cults, you know, the blood extraction, Trump as a savior, we're talking, what, about 17 to 18 percent of the country believes that now? The polling on this is all over the place. But yeah, that's uh, that's certainly within the general range. It could be certainly tens of millions of adults who believe this. So what was interesting about a poll, I think it came out earlier this week. There was an assumption that this is a lot of middle-aged, maybe even people in their 60s. But so much of the drive here in terms of growth intensity is among people under 30 which is incredibly scary in terms of what that means for our country and our politics. So talk about that, because that surprised me. I wasn't surprised that there was intensity there, but I was surprised at how strong the numbers were in terms of belief in QAnon, activism amongst people under 30. Yeah, I, I think I saw that poll as well, but that didn't surprise me because I, you know, I've been attending QAnon events for a couple of years now. And I went in thinking initially, like a lot of people, that QAnon was mostly a white boomer thing, that this is something that's right. sort of uh, demographically contained. But when I attended these events, what struck me was that it uh, was a lot more diverse than I thought, both, you know, in terms of age groups and uh, ethnically. What's interesting to me, and I'm thinking particularly of Republicans, you know, they may not believe JFK is still alive. Probably most of them believe Trump's a savior, but maybe not in the way QAnon adherents believe it. But they don't believe a lot of that. But things like the deep state, they do believe. So talk about that phenomenon, because it does seem like, okay, the Q people are having a really, really dangerous effect on a broader set of the population who may not believe all the things, but are willing to believe some of the things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, to be a conspiracy theorist is kind of like a mindset. So what happens is often they will believe some some sort of broader sort of conspiracy theory, like, for example, Spygate. This is the belief that the FBI and other federal agencies conspire to concoct evidence in order to create this Mueller investigation, which was based on fraudulent premises. And the inspector general of the Department of Justice claimed that the investigation was properly predicated, just be clear. 
but that's sort of like a baseless conspiracy theory, but at least it's, it's sort of grounded. It doesn't involve anything magical. It doesn't involve people faking their death. And it simply involves believing that the FBI did something corrupt, which is not that ludicrous thing of, to believe, basically. But often what we see is that this sort of leads into conspiracy theories that are less grounded in possibility. And that seems a little bit more magical because they're all premised on the idea that the institutions are hopelessly corrupt and they're not just misleading. They're not merely withholding some information, but rather they are pumping out a narrative that is totally opposite of the truth in order to keep people asleep. And so this is why you'll find sort of a, a broad coalition of people in QAnon, everyone from like flat earthers to uh, people who believe in, you know, like I said, JFK Jr. is alive or any other number of sort of ludicrous beliefs. We'll be right back with Travis View. Welcome back to Battleground. Can you give everybody just a brief explanation of both what the storm is? And what the Great Awakening is. So uh, in QAnon lore, they believe that there is going to be a great grand day of reckoning for all of Trump's enemies. There's going to be an event in which everyone from like Hillary Clinton to Lady Gaga to the entire crew of CNN are arrested and swept up. And this mass arrest event they call the storm. And they think that they will be sort of taken and face uh, military tribunals because civilian courts will be too good for their heinous crimes. And some of them will be forced to uh, go to Gitmo and some of them will be executed. And it will just be a, a massive sort of countrywide cleansing of all the evil people in the country. They also think that after this great cleansing, everyone will kind of like see what kind of evil was being committed by all of these wretched people. And then all of us blue-pilled normies who scoffed at them and doubted them will finally know what they know and will come to them and will say, gosh, you are right. I was wrong. And then everyone will come together in a common knowledge of uh, basically the QAnon tropes. They call this kind of event the Great Awakening. So I know there's been a lot of speculation investigation. Is the best sense that Q is a person? Is Q a group of people? Is Q Roger Stone? <laughs> like, right. what's our latest thinking on this? Sort of the topic of like who exactly started Q and how did it originate is is the subject of a, a lot of contentious debate. But most researchers generally agree that the people currently behind QAnon are probably Jim and Ron Watkins. This is the father and son team that is behind 8chan and 8Q, the image boards where QAnon posted. So it, it seems like this was partly a scheme to generate attention and uh, perhaps money for their website. So Steve Schmidt and I have talked about almost, I think, the guarantee that in 2022, maybe 2024, you're going to have a lot more Marjorie Taylor Greens running for office. She is probably the, the most uh, notable and successful Q adherent to win office. Now she's in Congress. My view is she's probably the rising star on the Republican Party coming out of this. Sadly, she kind of fits their gestalt right now. But what's your sense of that? Is there going to be now a movement that we need to get more power, we need more traditional power? 
Yeah. I mean, it does seem like a, you know, a contradiction to be this incredibly populist, anti-institutionalist kind of movement, but also being comfortable with having establishment power, like elected positions. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're going to take this hyper-populist, almost fantastical stance that she alone speaks for the people. And then anything that stands in her way is just representative of the swamp or demonic forces or everything else that's sort of wrong with uh, Washington. Question for you, Travis. I'm thinking about the presidential contest in 24, which has already started, right? But as it gets going in 2023, and as candidates are in South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, so I'm talking about the Republican primary field now. Do you think a decent chunk of them, I'm not saying all of them or even a majority of them, but will you know, if there's a cue sign at their event, they'll keep it up. They won't ask it to go down. They'll seek the support of people who are known cue adherents. I'm just curious, do you think it becomes more mainstreamed in conservative politics here in the U.S. over the next few years or not? I think that Republicans are going to be cognizant, as they have been, that they can't afford to alienate a single vote. So I think that at minimum, probably candidates are going to excuse or not attack QAnon in any capacity. And then perhaps some of the more bold candidates will uh, out and out pander to the QAnon community because QAnon followers, they are people who are extremely active online and they're willing to support any candidate who basically panders to their fantasies. They kind of like act as sort of like a digital street team for anyone that they think is a good guy. So, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be responses to how to manage the QAnon community. That can be anywhere from just being OK with them to out and out saying, you know, QAnon people are good people. Right. Then you have others say, well, listen, I clearly don't agree some of it, but I agree with some of it and I understand where they're coming from. Yes. Or or they'll say, like, there are people who are expressing legitimate grievances. The D.C. elite doesn't listen to them, that kind of stuff. QAnon followers don't focus solely on domestic politics, right? They've got a set of beliefs. But do you think it's a fait accompli that for the most part, the movement is anti anything Biden does? Do you think they may surprise us and say, actually, we think Biden's doing a good job on X, Y and Z? Kind of how do you anticipate that? No, no. I mean, these people, they aren't driven by policy priorities. They're driven by this vision of good versus evil. And then Biden is evil in their world. He is a puppet of China and uh, and possibly the cabal. So no, even if Biden does do something that perhaps would materially benefit them, even if Biden does do something that they would somehow uh, think is good, otherwise, if Trump did it, they will still be suspicious of it. Because again, they have this very simplistic vision of the world of, you know, heroes and villains. So I've seen you speak to this. There's been some really interesting journalism done about this phenomenon that just traces the journey of someone who goes from maybe not even knowing about QAnon to becoming a full believer. Talk about what you've learned about that journey. Let's talk about, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, how she became radicalized in the QAnon. She actually explains how that happened in a video. She says that she found out about QAnon from this Pizzagate and QAnon promoter named Liz Crokin. And uh, Liz Crokin was promoting what they call the Mueller white hat theory, which is the belief that Robert Mueller was not investigating Trump and his ties to Russia, but rather he was investigating Hillary Clinton and all the evil things that she was supposedly doing. Now, this is obviously ludicrous, but it's a very enticing 
story if you wanted to believe that Hillary Clinton was on the verge of being taken down. And I think this is really how it starts, is that someone takes a look at the sort of the state of things in national politics and becomes very, very disillusioned. And so they start hearing these alternate stories that aren't based in any sort of actual reality, that don't actually have any evidence in their favor, but are very, very enticing and then make the mark, the person who believes it, feel very good. And really, that's just how it starts. It starts as a story that people want to believe, and then that causes them to get sucked into this alternate world. We're going to take a quick break. Battleground will be right back. Welcome back. We're here with Travis View. So, Travis, you mentioned that some of these beliefs trace back to anti-Semitic tropes for centuries. (laughs) But talk about the role race plays, if any with the QAnon beliefs and growth that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, there's always this kind of underlining ethno-nationalism to the QAnon worldview. Sometimes when they talk about the utopia they envision involves basically all sort of immigrants kind of like dispersing from the United States. And immigrants, I think, is often the code word for, you know, non-white people. And so there is certain a strain there, but it's typical of QAnon. It's often hidden under layers of dog whistles and codes. So, Travis, we um, have seen in this country for for a long time now the growth of these so-called citizen militias. But what is the connection between QAnon and these armed groups? There's obviously some folks, I'm sure, who just happen to be in both. But what kind of organizing relationship do you see and how concerned should we be about that? As a matter of fact, one time when I went to a uh, QAnon meetup event in Tampa, Florida, one of my co-hosts of the podcast was handed a, a flyer, essentially a recruitment flyer for militia groups. So it seems, though, it's like what's happening is that at the very least, these militia groups understand that the QAnon community is a good pool of people to draw from. There are QAnon followers who are a little bit more militant than others. Now, what's interesting about QAnon is that they want the violence that they want to see happen outsource. They want violence to happen, but they think the courts are going to do it. The military is going to do it. Q is going to do it. Someone else is going to handle it for them. Now, the danger is when they stop believing that someone else is going to take care of the violence for them. They stop sort of having faith in the plan. They often say, trust the plan, trust the plan. And when that happens, uh, they will probably, some of them, you know, take matters into their own hands. And that's when we start seeing a real, very serious domestic extremism problem. So when you see something like with Kyle Rittenhouse, the shooter who killed in Kenosha, who's now is out on bail, we see this week hanging out with the Proud Boys, flashing the white power symbol. Is there a lot of reaction in Q forms to an event like that? Because I think that may tell us something. Like, does someone like Rittenhouse now become kind of celebrated in the Q community? Not really. Interesting. I didn't see like a whole lot of chatter generally from QAnon about Rittenhouse because, again, I mean, they have this fantasy that there's going to be just a dramatic event that makes everything better without the need for direct violence. Again, the worry is what happens when they stop having faith in that. But generally, they often say, you know, just get your popcorn ready as if it's all sort of entertainment. They think they just have to sit back and stay at their keyboard and post and meme. And this is how they make the sort of revolutionary changes that they want to see happen. And sort of like getting out your gun and making it happen yourself isn't necessary. 
So, Travis, there's a lot of chatter online in law enforcement circles about concern about more violence, whether it's in Washington and state capitals. You mentioned something on Twitter. There seems to be a lot of discussion in the QAnon movement to stay away from these protests, that these are basically deep state creations that are traps to just arrest people. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that an interesting sort of effect of the Capitol siege is that a lot of QAnon followers who participate in it are suffering consequences, which are not something that they perhaps expected to happen. And so as a consequence, there was a lot of chatter in the sort of QAnon community that the upcoming protests that are being circulated and organized by people in the far right are really traps and they shouldn't participate at all. Now, I don't know how many are going to heed that call, but there is a general worry about QAnon looking bad or being basically blamed for violence. So uh, it, it's tough to really say, you know, how many are going to uh, decide to stay away from the deep state trap and how many are going to decide to go anyway. But yeah, there is a general concern amongst QAnon followers that this isn't just being a digital soldier anymore. Like this is real. And if they get caught in the wrong situation, then uh, they could find themselves in the federal pen. That's fascinating, man. The QAnon optics police. Who knew? Here's the thing. They're all about optics. They always believe that something is always not what it appears. Even when Trump, for example, was uh, bashing Attorney General Jeff Sessions, QAnon followers who were told to trust Sessions from Q said, oh, this is all optics. This is all fake. So they really repeat this mantra that whatever things appear to be aren't what they really are. I'm curious, Travis, I'm sure you've talked to people who've left the movement. There's been coverage of this. Is there anything consistent like a thread that would suggest there are some arguments or messages or facts that ultimately get people uh, to think twice about this and leave or no? Is it more sort of random and based on a family member, the right family member having a conversation at the right time? Well, you know, like I said, facts didn't get people into this movement. So there's really no <laughs> reason to believe that facts are going to help get them out because the reason people fall for this has nothing to do with like, you know, people were persuaded by really solid arguments. It's really more they found the worldview satisfying and filled an emotional need that they had that wasn't being met elsewhere. Most people, they're able to find fulfillment through their career or their hobbies or uh, their interests, their family, their friends, these sorts of things. But if that doesn't do it for you, then QAnon can tell you that you are part of a global digital army that's about to make the world a better place. And then you are supremely important and you are about to become a, a vanguard and a thought leader in our great new grand utopia. And that kind of message can be very, very appealing for emotionally vulnerable people. Yeah, no, that's where it's going. It's a very unsettling thought. Well, listen, Travis, I've learned a tremendous uh, amount from our conversation. Your podcast is remarkable, and I'd encourage everybody to download and subscribe and listen to it. You know, sometimes we want to turn away from these things. And I think what we've learned last week, another example in Washington, is you can't turn away from things uh, that you don't understand that scare you, because this is going to be really, really important, not just of our politics, but our country's story for the years and decades to come. So you're providing such a vital service to all of us to understand it better. But I think everybody's got to stare at hard things right now, whether it's QAnon, whether it's the number of people in this country who would accept an insurrection, people who would say, we don't need elections anymore, let's just let the Trump family rule. This is a significant percentage of our country, and we all have to know that. But I think there's a lot of people who say, Trump will leave and everything's going to settle down and is going to far from settle down. 
In fact, I think it's going to get darker, more conspiratorial, more dangerous. And that's the fight in front of us. And you're helping us really understand such an important part of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that history teaches us that far right wing movements don't cool down during a Democratic administration. So it's definitely something that we're going to have to continue to pay attention to in the future. Absolutely. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for all you do. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, David. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast. Jess Williams did research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.